As we continue to work through the book of Isaiah, today we're at chapter 11, and I'll read from verses 1 through 10. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, and from his roots a branch will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of power, the spirit of the righteousness and of the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. And he will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy, and with justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the hole of the cobra, and the young child put his hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And in that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for all the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his place of rest will be glorious. Good morning. When I was uh, six years old, my mom, who had uh, six small children at home, became ill with colon cancer. In those days, there wasn't a lot of treatment except surgery, so she, though not a believer, cried out to the Lord and said, Lord, please spare my life so I can raise my six kids, ages 10 to 2. And God spared her life, even though she had another bout, more surgery. She was able to raise the six of us. And then after pouring her life into the six kids, and as we got older, she went back to teaching school, poured her life into those kids in the classroom until at age 62, she retired. At that point, everything she'd poured her life into, which was kids, children, was kind of gone, stripped away from her. And she fell into a fairly deep depression because that had been her life. And one day as she was walking Somewhere in town, she ran into another teacher, and she said, I don't know why, I just decided to be honest. (laughs) And she told the teacher how depressed she was. At that point, she gave her life to Christ as the teacher shared the gospel with her. And she discovered at that point that though she had poured her life into children, and that was a good thing, yet what her heart really longed for was Jesus. You see, she discovered what the true desire of Her heart was, and she accepted Christ at age 62 and spent the next 16 years learning to get to know him and walk with him before she went to be with him. Most, if not all of us as believers, I think this is common for us, is that God takes us to the end of ourselves, right? To to the very pits where everything else gets stripped away. And at that point is when we finally begin to look up. And we see the face of Jesus and his hand reaching down and the grace and the love that he offers us as a gift to reach out and save us and strengthen us and give us life. 
This is the normal Christian life, brothers and sisters, where God strips away everything else, our dependence on other things, so that we will turn to Him and learn to depend on Him, to really put our hope in Him. Israel is in that place as a nation as we come to Isaiah chapter 11. At the end of chapter 10, Isaiah describes a forest in which all the trees have been cut down. And all there are is stumps and there's no sign of life. It's a devastating picture. Nothing left alive. God has stripped his people of the trees that they put their hope in. Their, their kings, their idols, their own strength, other nations. And he stripped all that away. And now they're left with nothing except stumps. Everything looks dead and finished and over. Like he sometimes does with us, doesn't he? But God did this so that he could give them a new hope. So that he could begin to be their life instead of these other things. So they would look up and catch a fresh vision of him, Emmanuel, God with us, who is really the hope of every human heart. It's what we are created for. You see, in our foolishness, we look to other things, don't we? Every one of us. In our fallenness, we try to find life in other things and Yet God created us and knows that we were created for him. We all have this God-shaped vacuum in us that will only be satisfied as we learn to depend on him and give up the other things of this world. Are you in the pits? Are you struggling to make it in this world that's full of darkness and difficulty? Are you struggling to have hope in this messed up world? then today, as we look at this passage, may we look up and catch a vision of what God has for us so that as we see him and see his kingdom, it'll help see us through and it will fill our hearts with the true hope that we're created for. Pray with me. Thank you. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Son. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that You do all that you are to draw us to yourself so that we might learn where life really is. That it's not in this world or in our own efforts or any of those things we tend to put our hope in. But our hope is in you. Today, Lord, teach us about that and open our eyes and may our hope be moved more fully to you as we catch a vision for what you have for us. For what we are really created for. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was a boy, I remember we were camping in Steens Mountain and we went on a day hike and we went quite a ways up and I was pretty small. But somehow, I can't remember why, but I got separated from the rest of the group. And as I was trying to make my way back to camp, I got lost. I began to panic because I couldn't find anybody else. I was on my own. And I remember just that horrible feeling of feeling lost, of of feeling terribly afraid and not knowing if I could make it back. And I came to the top of a ridge and I looked down and I, and I saw this grove of quaking aspen and I remembered, I realized that was our camp. And I knew that as long as I kept that in mind and knew where to go, I, I, I could make it, even though I was still going to have to go through some deep places and over some ridges and down, I, I could tell where that was. So I had to keep that in mind. It's true for all of us in life that we go through these pits and ups and downs, but if we keep 
the end goal in mind, it will see us through and keep us going. And this passage is a wonderful picture of the fully realized kingdom of God under the reign of Messiah, under Jesus. And as we catch a vision of this, it'll help see us through this, the ups and downs of this world. What is the end goal? It's Jesus. It's Jesus and his kingdom. What are the qualifications of this king who's coming that Isaiah lays out for us? Well, simply that he's the root of Jesse. Verse 1 of chapter 11, Then a shoot will spring forth from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. Isaiah looks at this stump-laden forest where there's nothing alive, and he says, Ah, but a shoot is coming forth. A little shoot is beginning to grow. It springs out of the devastation. You see, some 250 years earlier, before Isaiah was writing, the people had said, we don't want to be different. We want to be like every other nation. We demand a king. And God gave them a king. David was a fairly good king, but pretty much every king since then was not so good. (laughs) And so this 250-year experiment of having a king had drawn nearly to a close, and it was falling apart. Things were not going well. But in this devastation where the trees are cut down and nothing looks good, and the forest of human pride has been devastated, God's saying, I have not given up on my covenant. I have not given up on my people. And there is someone who is coming who will fulfill the promises that were made to King David. Remember the Davidic covenant? Remember in 2 Samuel 7 where David said, I want to build you a temple. And God said, no, your son will, but I will build you a house, David. And one of your descendants will be the one that everyone longs for, that this world was created for, the Messiah who would come and set all things right. One of your descendants. And that's what's prophesied here, that Jesus would come. He would come from the stem of Jesse, from the roots of David, and he would begin to grow and bear fruit. He'd have humble beginnings like David, born in Bethlehem, rejected, but he would come forth. And from the time that Isaiah wrote, some 700 years went by as the nation of Israel waited for their Messiah to be born And he finally came after 500 years of occupation by foreign nations. But the qualifications of this king, he is truly descended from David. He is the heir to the promises of David. He is the true king. But if someone's going to reign, if they're going to be a leader, they need resources. They can't just stand up and say, I'm going to be a leader, but not have the resources to do it. What are the resources of this true king? Verse 2, the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. Donald Trump, our president-elect, is in the process of gathering his cabinet around him, gathering people around him, because he needs needs advice, he needs guidance, he needs wisdom. And brothers and sisters, we should pray that he makes wise decisions and chooses people who will seek God first and foremost. But this king, see... The Messiah, this leader, doesn't need the help of other people. He has the Spirit 
of God. He has direct access to the omniscient one, to the all-powerful one, to the omnipresent one who's everywhere, knows everything. God the Father, and so the Spirit of God is in him, and therefore he has all the resources that are far better than the best scientists, the best politicians, the greatest intellects that the world could ever offer. So much better. And so he mentioned six qualities of this spirit, and I just want to highlight them quickly, that this king needs to reign well, that Jesus relies on to be able to be the perfect ruler that we all long for, that our hearts long for, so we can totally trust in him. The first characteristic, it says, is wisdom, the spirit of wisdom. What is wisdom? Always knowing the best and right choice to make. As humans, even the best humans of us, we, we just don't have all the information. We don't know the wisest choice. But the Spirit of God gives to Jesus as king, as ruler, absolute wisdom. Secondly, understanding, the spirit of understanding. This has the idea of always seeing clearly what the issues are, always knowing fully what the issues are. How many times have you and I made decisions and we tried to get all the information we could, but, you know, we're so limited, we just don't have any idea. And then after we make the decision, we get more information. We realize that wasn't a very good choice at all. <laughs> but the Spirit of God on Jesus gives perfect understanding. So he always knows what the best course of action is. That's why we can trust him, right? With everything, because he sees everything. It's the Spirit of counsel, he says, third. Always the Spirit gives the best advice on what needs to be done. It's the Spirit of strength, he says. In other words, he has absolute power to carry out what needs to be done. He has the power and ability to do it. A lot of leaders have good intentions, but and they come in with these great policies, right? I'm going to do this, I'm going to accomplish this, and they make all these promises, but they can't carry it out because they don't have the power to do it. But Jesus has absolute power. So he wants us to trust him as a leader who has the, not only the perfect wisdom on what to do, but the power to carry it out in the right way. Next is the spirit of knowledge. He knows everything about you and about me. He knows everything in our hearts. He knows what's best for us. And he knows everything about every situation. So that's why we can trust him as our leader, as our king, because he sees the whole picture. He knows what's best for us. And he has a way because of his knowledge that when he does something, it's right for everyone involved. Isn't that amazing? We, we can trust him in that. We can trust that he'll always do what's best for all those involved. I remember a Christian comedian talking about his fear of flying. And he said, and someone said, well, what if it's not your time? He said, I'm not worried about that. But what if it's the pilot's time? But see, what God does is he does what's best for everyone involved. He sees the whole picture and he has all power so we can trust him. And then he has the spirit of the fear of the Lord. Everything that's done is in relation to the Father. Jesus says, I can do nothing apart from my Father. I do nothing apart from him. There's absolute dependence, fear, dependence, reverence of the Father, and therefore we can trust that what Jesus does as ruler, what he works out for us right now, all, all authority has been given him in heaven and earth. So as we trust him, we can trust him as the perfect leader that we all 
need. What does this all mean? It means that though we're limited in our understanding and that God often does things that are a complete mystery to us, right? I mean, God, why would you allow this suffering in this person's life? Why would you take Chad Heibel so quickly this week, suddenly? Why would you do this or that? And, and we don't understand what God's doing. We can trust that he knows exactly what he's doing. And it's always in line with the Father's will. And it's always right. And therefore, we can rest in his leadership in our lives. You see, that's where true hope comes from. It's the hope that he is at work. He has all authority. He has all wisdom. And he will do it according to what's best for us and best to all others involved. So Isaiah goes on to describe more of this reign of Messiah and gives us some qualities I want to highlight. Three qualities I want to highlight. First, that he judges righteously. Verse 3, he will delight in the fear of the Lord. Again, that dependence on the Lord. And he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. But with righteousness, he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. We live in a world in which there is no justice or very little of it. And the reality is the poor and the oppressed are treated terribly. And those with power and money and wealth dominate. But the reign of Messiah is one in which he does not reign according to partiality, according to what people think. He doesn't act according to what he hears or what he sees. He acts according to an objective standard of righteousness. And so everything he does is according to that. It is always right. It is always right according to the Father. He always does what's right because he has the Spirit. And so he decides what's best and he gives fairness to the poor and the oppressed who in this world almost never get a fair shake. And he will make sure they get treated fairly. You see, I think that's an encouragement to us that as we become citizens of the kingdom of God, even now and as we're trying to live it out, that we be people who reflect God's heart for the poor and the oppressed, that we go out of our way to do what we can to stand up for those who don't have anybody standing up for them. That we care for those who, who don't have power or ability to care for their own needs in our culture. We are to be people that reflect the very heart of God for the poor and the oppressed, for those who are slaves of a sex trade and etc., etc. The second quality I see of the reign of Messiah is that he eliminates wickedness. He eliminates wickedness. The end of four, he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. He's so powerful. He just has to speak forth. And when he does, he will eliminate wickedness from this world. This king will finally and fully deal with the wickedness in the world. He will eliminate it. And brothers and sisters, I don't know about you, but for me, this is such a longing of my heart. I hope it is of yours, that the wickedness, the evil in this world that is so horrible and damaging. And we read every day, we read about more murders and more shootings of policemen and more tragedies in the Middle East and in Sudan and 
through ISIS and all over the world. And it's a difficult, painful, horrible world. And then if we're honest, we see the evil in our own hearts. And I don't know about you, but I long for a world in which that's gone, that's been dealt with, where there's nothing left but purity and righteousness and goodness and evil is taken out of this world forever and ever. And I cannot wait for the reign of Messiah to come. Amen. And then third, quality of this reign, this king, is that righteousness and faithfulness will dominate his kingdom. Righteousness and faithfulness will dominate his kingdom. Verse 5, also righteousness will be the belt around his loins and faithfulness is the belt about his waist. As a sash or a belt, righteousness and faithfulness will stand out. What stands out about our leaders today? Generally, their weaknesses, right? (laughs) The things they do wrong, uh, their limited ability to accomplish things. But what's most visible about this king is that he is righteous. He always does what's right. He's always faithful. He's always trustworthy. We can always put our trust in him and know he will do what's best. This is the kind of ruler that Israel always wanted. And they looked to every king. Is this the one? And none of them were. But God said once coming. He'll be born as a baby. But he will be the king that you all desperately long for. And not only is this the kind of king that Israel longed for, it's the kind of king and ruler that you and I long for. You see, our hearts were made not to live independently and to go our own way. Our hearts were made to trust in a Messiah like this. And we are only fulfilled and our hearts will only be fulfilled as we learn to rest in trusting him as Lord and Savior of all. So why in the world would we be so taken up by human leaders, by presidential candidates, by pastors, by celebrities? Why do we look to them when we have a Messiah, a ruler, a king like this who is bringing in the true kingdom of God? And then verse 6 through 10, there's three results of his reign I want to highlight. The first result of his reign, when he reigns, and as he's already begun to reign now, but as he will finally and ultimately bring about, will be a completely renewed creation. Renewed creation. Remember back in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve sinned and God said to Adam, Cursed is the ground because of you. With toil you will bring forth fruitfulness. It'll it'll bring for thorns and thistles. And so ever since then, all of creation has been subject to corruption. Uh, Paul talks about it in Romans chapter 8, where he says that in 8, verse 21 and following, about the corruption that all the earth has been subject to, longing, groaning to be set free into this new kingdom that God is bringing about as he makes us right and makes the world right. And I think this is, especially important to the Israel as you think about what this meant to them because as he describes, let me, let me read this just to set the context. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb and the leopard will lie down with the young goat and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together. And a little boy will be their shepherd. 
Also the cow and the bear will graze, the young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child will put his hand in the viper's den. You see, the life of a farmer was constant fear, caring for your animals, the the lambs and the calves and the goats, afraid that wild animals would come in. They were running rampant in Israel in those days, and so they were terrified of what would happen, and so they were afraid and protecting what they had, lest they lose it all. But Isaiah gives a picture when all that's gone. There is no fear, because why? The predators and the prey lay down together. There's peace, complete. All the twistedness of nature, especially mosquitoes, will be gone. (laughs) He'll make it all right. It'll be glorious. You see, catch a vision for how incredible this will be, where, where a little child can lead the lions and the leopards and the wolves and play by poisonous snakes' holes because there's no fear. What a glorious, glorious day that will be. And just a footnote here. Notice it's the wolf will dwell with the lamb. There is no lion laying down with the lamb. We see all those pictures, right? (laughs) And we hear that. The lion will lay down. It's not biblical. It's not in the Bible. Not that it really matters. I mean, it is a picture of perfection and holiness. But I've always been struck by that. Somehow that came in to our thinking. But what a glorious day it'll be when nature, when creation, all of creation is renewed. But especially, and this is the next result of his reign, is that mankind will be renewed. There'll be a universal knowledge of true God, of the true God, and mankind will be renewed. Verse 9, they will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. You see, the real problem with our world today, brothers and sisters, is that people have rejected the knowledge of God. Romans 1 describes that, that everybody has the knowledge of God deep down. We were created by him. We have a knowledge of him. But Romans 1 says, because mankind suppressed the knowledge of him and decided to live independently of God, to be their own gods, to create their own kingdoms, then what happens is that the world falls apart. And that's where we are today. But see, under the reign of Messiah, the result will be the knowledge of God will be everywhere. Everyone who's there, part of the kingdom, will have a knowledge of God. And that doesn't mean just know about him. That means know him personally. When you know God truly and personally, your whole life lines up with reality. You're part of a kingdom that is beautiful and glorious. And that's what our hearts long for. Every one of us is to be part of that kingdom where there's peace in relationships and we get along with one another. And let me just say, I've met a number of Christians who... This idea of of knowing him, really knowing him intimately is terrifying for them. They've given their lives to Christ, but they have this vision, maybe from their background, from what their fathers were like or whatever, of of a God who's scary. So they don't want to know him. This doesn't appeal to them. Well, let me say to you that the only answer to that is to know God better because you do not know the true God if you're afraid of him. What you know is some twisted caricature of him. 
And if you know the true God, you will be drawn to know him. It's like C.S. Lewis in his Narnia books as he writes about Aslan. Aslan was this terrifying lion until you got to know him. And you realize, yes, he's powerful. Yes, he's not safe, but he's good. And you want to know him and you realize how loving he is. The only antidote to a fear of God is to know him better. To know him as he truly is. To know him through Jesus, our Savior. The third result of this reign of the king is the nations will seek the true God. Verse 10, then in that day, the nations will resort to the root of Jesse, who will stand as a banner, a signal for the peoples, and his resting place will be glorious. He'll be a banner. Now, in war, when there was a battle going on, the troops would rally to the banner as a sign of their commitment to that king, to that leader, whoever was holding the banner or whoever represented But what he says here is all the nations will rally to Jesus in this new kingdom. All the nations will seek the true God. There'll be peace forever. They'll all be under one king. They'll submit to and follow the Messiah, Jesus. There will finally be no war. There'll be peace and unity in the world. And this resting place of God will be glorious. And by the way, that word, the end of 10, his resting place will be glorious What is his resting place where God rests? It's interesting that same word is used in Isaiah 66, verse 1 and 2. I won't take time to read it now, but I encourage you to, where it says, you know what, I don't rest in a temple, God says, but where I rest is in a humble and contrite heart that trembles at my word. Isn't that amazing? Because the real resting place of God, where he dwells, this mighty king, this Messiah, where does he love to dwell? In a humble and contrite heart. In his people who tremble at his word, who are willing to know him and seek him, who have given up their pride, who the forests of human pride will be cut down and destroyed and wiped out. But what will be left? The remnant who have humble and contrite hearts where he dwells and the Messiah reigns, who are trusting in him as God and Savior and in a world that's been renewed, where we have been renewed and recreated in him. Isn't that what your heart longs for? I can't wait. I long for that kingdom to be fully realized. It's here, but not fully realized. I long for evil to be dealt with. We long for the new heavens and new earth. We long for Jesus to reign in righteousness. But even today, he can dwell in us. The kingdom is here and we can trust in him as he works out his will, even in the midst of a fallen world. If that's what you long for, then let's begin living it out now. Let's live as the people who in whom he dwells. And let me just highlight something. It says The banner. He'll be the banner that's lifted up. What is the banner of Jesus? Isn't it his cross? Jesus said, And if I be lifted up on a cross, I will draw all men unto myself. That's the banner that shows he's a humble king, a humble king that we can trust in, 
So let's trust Him now. Let's let go of the things we're trusting Him. Let's let God cut those out of our life and our own pride. And let's put our hope in Him as the true King, shall we? We're going to take communion together and celebrate that banner, celebrate this new King, and our hope that one day this kingdom will be fully realized. Keep that in mind, brothers and sisters, as you walk through the ups and downs of life. But let me pray first, and then we'll take communion together. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you came as a baby in humility to establish a foothold in a world that's broken and evil and dark in a way that no one could have imagined. And then you went and died on a cross in the most humiliating, horrifying way. But through that humility, you established a kingdom and you now reign with all authority and you are working all things together for good to those who love you. And we, as your people, celebrate you and your cross today because we are part of that kingdom, not because of anything we've done, not because of our goodness, but because of your death for us. Thank you for bearing the cross for us. And as we turn now to take communion and celebrate your death on that cross for each of us, we come humbly before you and we give you praise and thanks as our Messiah, the true King. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.